Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Governor Pete Ricketts of Nebraska dropped by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago last week. And after the event, we sat down for a really interesting conversation. Ricketts, a solid conservative who is completing his second and final term as governor, recently created some buzz when his chosen successor prevailed over a Trump-backed candidate in the Nebraska Republican primary. We talked about his life, baseball, he's the owner with his family of my beloved Chicago Cubs, and about many of the issues that are roiling our politics and country today. Here's that conversation. Governor Ricketts, it's great to be with you. Thank you for being at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. You just had a great event here. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's great to be back at my alma mater. Indeed. Not just an undergraduate, but a graduate student as well. Absolutely. And as you said, a year in between where you hung out. Yeah. So In the classic way. They just hung out on campus, right? Yeah. Might have been more than that, than I think about it. But Also at Wrigley Field, apparently. You know, actually, I used to have an apartment right across the street from Wrigley Field. It yeah. was a ton of fun. Um, actually, my old apartment is now part of the Sports Corner Bar. Ah, uh, It's yeah. the second floor of the bar. Well, we'll get to the Ricketts family and your investment up there. But uh, I don't know if it's as much fun when you own the place as when you were uh, hanging out in the bleachers. Oh, it's way more fun. I get way better seats now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. I get to go on the field and nobody tackles me or anything like that. It's let, awesome. Let me uh, let me talk to you about first about the Ricketts family and how, how did where the Ricketts come from and how did they end up in Nebraska? Yeah, so we're well, we're from well. I mean, my parents grew up in Nebraska, so I'm a fourth generation on my dad's side, fifth generation on my mom's side, Nebraska. So our family's been there a long time. Where'd they come from originally? um, Well, let's see. We can trace our lineage back to Maryland in the 1710s on my dad's side. Oh, my goodness. My mom's side came over from Germany and France in the 1850s. So my dad's family has been actually in America for a long time. We think my dad's family came from Wales, but we can't prove it. Mm. Uh, but it would really start off in Maryland, and then kind of his family moved his way to uh, Ohio, down to Louisiana, uh, down to New Orleans, actually, for a while, then to Iowa, and then across the river to Nebraska with uh, my great-grandfather, Roscoe Rollin Ricketts. Knowing what I do about your dad, I don't know him, uh, but he seems like kind of a badass. I mean, he, I mean, it's, it's an amazing story, really, uh, because he worked his way up from like when he was a little kid. Yeah. Yeah, no, my dad's my hero. So he put himself through Creighton University. He was the first person in his family really to go to college. And he did it by working in a bakery to earn money for tuition, worked uh, in the commissary on campus to get food and then clean the, as he said, clean the toilets so he could get room. So he kind of did all those sort of things to be able to pay for it. Wasn't a particularly good student either. <laughs> of course, when you're working that much, it's kind of hard yeah. to be a good student. 
but that's how he put himself through college. He was actually, and he wasn't like a four-year graduate. It took time, you know, to get I through all that. I thought said nine years or something. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time to get through it, but eventually he got his degree. In fact, the reason he got his degree is because he wanted to go into the brokerage industry. And uh, when he applied to the brokers, like Dean Witter at the time, they said they wouldn't hire him unless he had a college degree. So uh-huh. he went back to my mom and said, hey, I need to get my college degree. We're going to have to tighten our belts and all that sort of stuff. Because you were so, already around. I was already a baby. I was already born at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've done your homework. Yeah. Did you read his book? Uh, I did. I didn't. And I'm, I'm, I'm remiss in that regard. I will send you a copy, David. Okay. I, I, I will, I will read it. Um, one thing though, that struck me was, um, in, in reading about him is that this incredible drive and all of the responsibility that he had meant that he was working all the time. Yeah. And, uh, I was wondering what that was like for you as a kid. Obviously your mom was superhuman. Right. Uh, but as uh, all moms are. Yes. And I'm wondering how that shapes your own approach to parenting, uh, whether you, you're assiduous about spending more time with your kids because of the time that you missed with your dad when he was. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that, you know, growing up, you don't know any better, right? You assume just everybody's like that. And frankly, we came from an era when dads worked hard and weren't particularly involved in their kids' lives anyway, right? My dad talks about his grandfather was, like his father, my grandfather was really not involved. Like I remember my Uncle Bob saying the only time he got to know his dad is when he was getting ready to go off to the Marines. Mm. Uh, so, and they sat around on the floor and drank a bottle of whiskey. You know, it was just like, that was, it was a different era and I think it's changed over time. And definitely having uh, seen how hard my dad worked, I tried to be more cognizant about spending time with my kids and I still do. Uh, even as governor and, you know, because my, my kids were still in school at the time, we always said Wednesday is family dinner night. So if you want me to an event, don't plan it for Wednesday night because I ain't going to be there. Mm-hmm. And Sundays for church and family so I could spend time. So being more thoughtful or intentional about carving out that time for the family and trying to spend more time. But I also had the same habits my dad did as being a workaholic and, you know, going to work at seven o'clock in the morning, come home at seven o'clock at night and that sort of thing too. So, you know, the acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree. I hope I've done a little bit better than my dad. You know, I'm really sensitive to it because, I mean, I too was very driven, you know, coming up in first journalism, then politics. My kids were young. I had one very ill kid. Uh, and um, I look back at those years and I, and I, not, not with great pride about the decisions that I made. And uh, one of the things that I told my boys who, one has two kids. Another one is uh, expecting, um, you know, don't do not do what I did. Don't, you know, pursue your careers, but this time is going to go by very, very fast. It's certainly true in any profession, that there's no substitute for elbow grease, right? You just got to work hard and that yields results. But you're right, there's a cost to it. And I actually think it's one of the things we see in young people today that they aren't willing to do that as much. Yeah. It's not a bad thing. You know, yeah. they want to have more of a balance. Yeah. And so I actually... Uh, you know, tell people the same sort of thing. I go, hey, your kids are young. Hug them now. They grow up fast. Yeah. And you it's incredible take how the time fast to- it goes. Go by so fast. Yeah. Uh, and same thing. And, and here's the other thing. Like nobody ever died wishing they'd spent more time at the office. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's a cliche, but like most cliches, it's true. So your right. dad, your dad told you that you could pick any college you wanted to go to so long as you didn't, you weren't close enough to come home and had to do your laundry. Is that a true story? Not quite true. So here's how I ended up at the University of Chicago, because it's kind of a fun story. And I don't know that's ever been recorded anywhere before. And maybe after this. That's an exclusive. They, an yeah, X-Files You've got exclusive, an exclusive yeah. here. So 
my my dad was the one that read about the University of Chicago. My uncle was going to the school here at the art school, I think, somehow associated with mm-hmm. the Art Institute. And so my dad saw like in US News and World Report or something that University of Chicago was ranked the 11th best college in the nation. And so he wanted me to apply. I had no interest. I'd never heard of it before. I didn't know. Huh. So I was applying to places like Stanford and Rice University and Washington University these, in St. These. Louis. Right. And I applied to Creighton University and University of Nebraska as well. And uh, I was going to pretend to forget to apply to the University of Chicago. And my dad said, Peter, did you get that uh, uh, application? Because he calls me Peter. Peter, did you get that uh, application in? I'm like, oh, geez, dad. I forgot. And look at the time. It's almost due. He's like, you get it in. I'm like, okay, yes, sir. I'll get it in. And so with all my other applications, I tried to think, be really deep thinking for, you know, like an eight, 17-year-old, 18-year-old, whatever it was, and type it out, right? This is back when we did back then, right? We had typewriters. We typed it out. For the University of Chicago, I grabbed a pen, filled out the application in ink, you know, didn't type it out, and kind of made some smart remarks on some of the things. Like it asked, did you play a musical instrument? I said, I play a little harmonica, which was very literally true. Like I had picked up a harmonica and I tried to play it, but that was about the extent of my musical talent. Turns out of all the places I applied, the only place I got in out of state was the University of Chicago. Because of our famous harmonica school here. Because your famous harmonica. Yeah. I actually yeah. think it's because I demonstrate a little personality. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I, I went here and I, I did not have the grades to go here. And I came out for an interview that lasted three hours. Wow. And I went in when it was it was light out. I left, it was dark out. And I, I'm pretty much talked my way into it, which I think they regretted for the next four years. But, uh, Absolutely not. Hey, they hired you back. They couldn't have regretted it that much. Yes, but it took me 40 years. You, I, I do think about my professors because they, wherever they are, they are – Smiling down at, at at the irony of the whole of the whole thing that I'm running an institute here at the university. Uh, well, well, I should point out you you went to college. We said you went to business school, and then you went back to uh, Omaha, back to Nebraska. Yeah. Why did you go back? Because you, you apparently really liked Chicago. Oh, I love Chicago. It's a great city. Had a great time here. Lived here, you know, on and off for about ten years. I had the opportunity. So my dad had asked me to come back to the family business, and he had a rule that you couldn't come back until you're age thirty because he wanted you to go off and establish yourself in a field. And he said, whatever title you have in that field, you can come back and have here. If you're a vice president, you'll be a vice president. If you're you know, the hmm. administrative assistant, you're the administrative assistant. You know, you're receptionist, you're receptionist. And whatever you're getting paid, that's what I'll pay you. So I had actually just gotten laid off from a job here in Chicago, working for an environmental consulting firm. You know, economy was bad. First person that lay off is a sales guy. And so my dad called me up and said, hey, would you, if you want to come back, now's a good time. And frankly, I got to tell you, at the time, I really, just like I really didn't intend to apply to the University of Chicago, I really didn't want to go back at that time because I was loving Chicago. But I'd worked for enough companies by that point that I was like, I want to see, I want to have more involvement how decisions are made because I thought companies made poor decisions and I didn't understand why they made those poor decisions. So that's why I went back to Nebraska to work for the family business. Yeah. And we should point out the family business was not a corner store. It ultimately became TD Ameritrade. I mean, one of the interesting things about your family story is that you were a solidly middle-class family when you were growing up, up, and then suddenly, after all the work that he put in, your father became a billionaire, and that is- That was a period of decades to get there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was really a, a shift there. Did it change the family? It probably changed us in, well, a number of different ways of things. But I I will say that, you know, so, you know, again, we grew up very middle class. I mean, when we were growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. I remember at one point, the dishwasher didn't work for years. And we were the dishwashers, the kids. 
And we had a chair to prop, uh, prop the oven door closed because it wouldn't stay closed by itself until mom and dad could afford to get it fixed. Uh, but uh, as the company grew, when I joined, we had about 100 people working at Ameritrade. And when I left, we had like 6,000 people. So, it, you know, but that was over a period of about almost a dozen years. So it, it did grow rapidly for a company. But one of the things my dad always made us as people working at the companies, he didn't want to sell any stock. So we really couldn't monetize, even though the stock increased greatly in value, we couldn't really monetize it. Now our salaries went up, so, and that we got paid nicely. Mm-hmm. So, but it wasn't like it became like this super wealthy thing all at once. It's really been over a period of time. And, um, you know, and, and Ameritrade has continued to be successful and the stock price has gone up. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were ups and downs. There was yeah. the, 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 the bust of the- Oh yeah, we went from a stock price of like 73 and then the dot-com bubble thing happened and we went down to three. <laughs> and nothing's going to make you think, huh, this wealth could go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When that happened? Um, you, you, you came back, you did that, that you, you, you rose in the company and then you ran for the Senate in 2006. You spent a great deal of money to do it and you lost narrowly by, no, I got by my 28 tail, points. I, got, yeah, I was going to say, I got my points. tail handed to me. I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> 28 points. Uh, and first of all, that's what you get when you run against a popular incumbent. Yes, in a bad year. In a bad year, Uh, too. So uh, you lost to Ben Nelson, a Democrat, in a year that was a very strong Democratic year. Was it always in your mind to run for public office? Not at all, actually. Uh, I really, I'd always paid attention, but I never had really considered running for office seriously. Was politics talked a lot about in your house? I paid attention to politics. We did talk about it, but it's not like, never from the standpoint of, oh, geez, we got to run, you know, that kind of thing. It was really because um, our then U.S. Senator Chuck Hagel had been touring Ameritrade and thought that we ran a really great operation, which we did. We had great people and asked if I had actually asked like in February of 2005, had I ever thought about running for office? And I said, no, and I'd be a terrible candidate. But actually, that's having somebody seriously ask you made me start thinking about it. And about three months later, I went back and said, you know, actually, I would consider doing this. Uh, Ameritrade was going through a transition, so it was a good time for me to step away, and it wouldn't be terribly odd. And I kind of felt like I was called to do it. I was interested in it. And I think it's a great lesson of you, you should ask people. If you want, like, for example, in Nebraska, we're, we always want people to come home. We should ask them. We should ask young people. Go away. Go get your education at University of Chicago or mm-hmm. Stanford, but come back afterwards. Well, it's important you gotta make, because gotta make the you, you, like most of the states in this region, including Illinois, suffering with population and trying to keep that population growing, and it's not easy uh, in this region. So, so when you lost by twenty-eight points, did Hegel come back and say, "You're right. You were a terrible." <laughs> No, he didn't. He didn't come do that. He, he was. He was like, "Hey, thanks for running," but I got to tell you, I how did you that. feel about losing? Well, well losing is terrible. Nobody likes losing. I mean, it's I mean, you know, it's terrible. hard. People don't. Really, you put yeah. your name out there. You are. You're. You're out there in everybody's face. You and you're basically saying, "Judge me." Uh, and well, now you're making me really feel no, bad. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't lay it on so thick if you didn't have another chapter. But um, but uh, I'm just wondering, you know, you come from a very successful, achievement-oriented family, how that sat with you? And was there a period of depression after that? Or how did you? Well, I, I'd say a couple things. And I think, well, first of all, my daughter, Margo, who was seven at the time, came up to me and said, Daddy, I know you're very sad that you lost the election, but we're glad to have you home. Yeah. How are you going to feel bad about that? Yeah. Right. 
And the other thing I learned is that, you know, like the sun came up the next morning. My wife was still my wife. My kids were still my kids. Yeah. My friends were still my friends. And the world didn't end. It was okay. It's, you know, you, you, if, here's the thing. If you don't take risks, you will not make progress. And sometimes when you take risks, things don't turn out the way you think. That's the definition of a risk. So sometimes you got to fail and you learn way more from your failures than you do your successes. And I got to tell you, I love the experience. Even though I lost and got my tail handed me, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. You know, uh, Eddie Stanky, who managed the Chicago White Sox in the 1960s, had a famous expression, which was, no risk baseball is second division baseball. That's exactly right. That's so, a great saying. I mean, the same is true in, in, in politics. I want to ask you about some, one aspect of that campaign and your future campaigns, because you ultimately ran again for governor successfully. Um, you, one of the positions that you took was against same-sex marriage, which was a huge issue back then. A lot of politicians, Democrat and Republicans, were wrestling uh, with that issue. You took a firm position against it. Your sister, Laura, is a friend of mine. She's a leader in the gay community here in Chicago. Married with a family. Yep. Um, and you, you know, I think you still maintain that position, right? Is that yeah? What, yeah. So, how, I'm just wondering about that because obviously you you love your sister. Yeah. And do you think her marriage is less valid than yours or mine? And just, so the way I think about it is this way: first of all, I do love my sister, and we had she's a good you know, several conversations about this, yeah. right? So, I mean, this was and tough conversations. And I love her wife, Brooke. She's awesome. Yeah, she is. And I love her kids. They're awesome kids. When you think about, but this is where I think, and a lot of uh, folks have trouble distinguishing between the things that you think are, are personal versus what are the public policy implications of what we're doing. And when I think about, when we're thinking about like, what is going to be the best arrangement? So where, where does the state have an involvement on this? Because historically, the state has not gotten involved in marriage, right? Historically, it's been a religious institution thing. But where the state has- Well, the state uh, issues marriage yeah. licenses. Issues of licenses, but typically because yeah. somebody, either a judge or a religious institution says, yeah, these two people got married. So, but where does the state really have, um, you know, involvement in marriage? Well, two things really, property, dividing property, Right through a divorce or death or whatever. And which, again, to me, that's not a big issue. Uh, we can handle it through contracts or whatever. And I don't get too twisted up about that. But then it's also what happens to children. And I believe that the best opportunity, if we've got a child, is to put them into a home. Uh, and this is on a grand scale on average, not to say there can't be parents who are good about this, but I think the best opportunity is to find a, a home where you got a man and a woman. Now, other people are going to disagree with that, but that's kind of- But you must feel fun. like you're, I don't know whether they're nieces or nephews, but you're grand- you're, you're, got both, yeah. Uh, so they got one of each. You must feel that, they, they, that they're, they've got solid parenting. Yeah, absolutely. Brooke and Laura are great parents. But again, it's about, it's the difference between what you want at an individual level and what kind of policy you're trying to make at a state level. Now, obviously, the Supreme Court made it a moot point, but- that's where I was coming from on the policy side of it is what do we think is going to give kids the best chance? Um, on the, I, we could talk about this for a for long time. For a long time. time. Yeah. yeah. No, the, it's, it's the, a big complicated issue. I totally get it. No. Well, and especially given your personal connection to it, I can only imagine what those conversations were like because it's also a matter of sort of conferring uh, dignity on relationships. And I'm sure that your sister feels that relationship is worthy of the same dignity as your oh, relationship with your wife and my relationship with my wife. 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Around that same period of time, in between your race for the Senate and your race for governor, your brother, uh, Tom, had an idea, which was to buy this baseball team here in Chicago. Uh, And uh, I'm wondering whether you thought that was a, a good idea. The Ricketts family ultimately went in bought the Cubs, uh, which was a, a, a bunch of perennial, I mean, they had up seasons and down, but basically perennial losers with a charming uh, but broken down ballpark <laughs> that people love to, to see. Uh, I was wondering what your feelings were about that. Well, so Tom actually brought this idea to me in the fall or summer of 2006 while I was running for Senate. And I said, actually, I said, I love the idea, but I have no time to help you. Right. I'm busy all focused on this. And so Tom didn't really want my help anyway. <laughs> so he's like fine with that part. But I think um, he wanted some of your money is what he wanted. Well, it, we actually family invested money, through a family yeah. trust. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So I actually thought that was a great idea because- That's like the best deal for him. Yeah. You guys were in and he could run the, the team. Right. Well, not quite because we did form a board- that it consisted of well, his siblings. Yes. So he reported to his siblings. <laughs> and while he and he had his own successful business yes. and company where he was the head honcho and CEO. I don't think that board was as tough on him as his siblings <laughs> were as tough on him. <laughs> yeah. So there's right, like the people who've known you all your life, yes. they may not think you're all that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Generally you don't have board members who can put you in a headlock and stuff like that. So I'm sure. Oh, uh, I stopped doing that a long time ago when Tom got taller than me. Yeah. I mean, we in Chicago benefited from- Yeah, Tom did a great job. You know, he's, he was, and it's a classic example of leadership, right? He set out from the first day saying what the goals were, right? That we were going to bring a championship to Chicago, that we were going to be good neighbors, and that we we're going to fix up Wrigley Field. And that's what he set out to do. And that's what he's accomplished. Tremendously successful in all those accounts. And made it a successful business too. I mean, absolutely. that and the real estate around uh, Wrigley Field. So I have to ask you, in 2014, you- uh, you ran for governor in uh, Nebraska. You won. Uh, two years later, the Cubs won the World Series. Uh, which was the biggest thrill? Was it the getting elected governor of Nebraska or ending a hundred and what a hundred eight year drought in uh, Chicago and bringing a a World Series champion back to Chicago? You must have been in Cleveland for that. Game, I was right? in Cleveland, as a matter of fact. I arrived late to the game too because. That's right. All the, the action was at job. the end. Yeah, the day job. But it was good. I, yeah, I got, I got all the ends, right? You know, for me, being governor was more impactful because as governor, governor's a great job. I was kind of having a, a yeah. sort of you get, you get, joking, to, you, get but... you get to do fun stuff. Now, I got to say that winning the World Series is pretty darn fun. <laughs> but, you know, Tom was the one who really was the architecture of that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously we were on the board. At some point I did get off the board. I can't remember exactly when. But Tom, Tom was the architecture of that. And he did a fantastic job. And, you know, as governor, you get to have the same kind of impact. You can make changes that actually result in real world changes. And there's always the University of Nebraska, right? You can win championships with them. Yeah, I'm not sure they're for sale. <laughs> of course, with this whole NIL stuff, you never know. Just <laughs> So uh, you become governor and you ran on a kind of classic sort of conservative Republican, you know, low taxes, limited regulation and uh, bringing modern management techniques 
to government, all, all of which you have uh, done. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the role of government should be? Well, one of the things I did run on was running government more like a business. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm kind of getting your question here. Republicans and Democrats will argue over the size and scope of government. If you want to really boil it down, that's kind of what we're asking. What should government do? But there are things we agree it should do. And those things we should do really, really well, right? We should be we should be operationally excellent. We should be really doing a great job of providing services. We should apply the same lessons that businesses use every day to do a great job of providing their services to government, to make government run really well. And so that's one of the things that I campaigned on. And that's one of the things we've done as I've been governor is really improve the level of service we're providing for people. You know, so what, you know, that, to me, it's about like, I'm obviously as a Republican, I'm more on the side of, hey, we should be looking at what are the government's core functions and not getting in the way of the private sector as they're trying to do things and that sort of thing. And we've done a great job, frankly, of improving level of services. I'll, I'll just share with you one example. We have an economic assistance line. It's where people f- apply for you know food assistance or energy or whatever. But the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, is a how you, that's one of the ways you can apply. Yeah. Otherwise, you no know, food stamps. In August of 2014, before I got elected, people were waiting on average 23 minutes to get their phone calls answered. That means some people wait a lot longer. Well, what does that say to our customers about how we feel about them? Let me ask right? you something. No, I think it's a great yeah. example. Uh, do you? But so obviously you see uh, the SNAP program, food stamps, as an important program. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of how we. I mean, we think we do think there's role for government to provide assistance to people to to help them up. Now, one of the things we've also done is we've established a program called SNAP Next Step, where we take our job coaches from the Department of Labor mm-hmm. and offer them to our families on SNAP mm-hmm. to be able to help them get a better job. And we've been able to help a lot of families get that next best job so they're less reliant on SNAP and some got off SNAP entirely. That's the way government should work. Say, hey, we know you need help. Let us help you. But let's also help you not be dependent on that forever. Let's now, are they required the to do that? No. Nope, it's no requirement. So, so it's let voluntary. Me, no, l- let me ask you. That's good. Let me ask you um, just a big concern. This is not, these are not um, state programs, but, you know, for time immemorial, there were these debates about Social Security, about Medicare. Are those proper? Were those proper roles? Are those proper roles for government? Those I, social insurance programs. I think providing a basic backstop in Social Security to be able to help people was not a bad idea. I think the I mean, problem it's basically done, an insurance program. Yeah, but basically the problem is we've allowed it to expand where people are trying to make it that that's all they do, and we're trying to do a lot more things with Social Security it was never intended to do. And by the way, when we put that system in place, I think there were what is it twenty three workers for every one no, retiree. No, no, understood that. It's, like put three. Pressure, it's put yeah. pressure on the system. It also yeah. basically eradicated uh, to a very large degree what was pervasive elderly poverty in this country. Yeah. So providing that backstop, I think, was something that was important. But I think also thinking about, well, then we've allowed it to expand to do things it was never originally intended to do. And now, as we know, it's you know financially unstable, right? It's, depending, something's going to have to be done about it at some point in the future. They're going to put more money in or mm-hmm. some sort of reforms are going to have to be made. Mm-hmm. But you think these are appropriate things. Medicare as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think mm-hmm. there's I think there's things that we as a society have said there's certain basic things at a certain basic level we want to provide. I think where we get into trouble is when we allow for scope creep, where those things just keep getting bigger and bigger. And we don't understand we have to make trade-offs when you do that. That You can't keep affording every – you can't keep paying for everything. Let me ask you there about sort of the issue of the day. And I know you've been answering 
questions about it. But the other night I was in New York, I was supposed to be uh, on CNN talking about the elections. Uh, and then this horrific story broke in Texas uh, about the school shootings there. And I'm sure like you, my mind, I had just been at my grand's children's school, my seven-year-old granddaughter, my five-year-old grandson in their classrooms. And I couldn't stop thinking about them because it could well have been them, the most innocent people in the world. What do we do about this? And, you know, I know that the young man clearly was, uh, well, I mean, apparently so, apparently so, apparently so, let's say apparently so. But he also, you know, when he turned 18, he bought an AR-15 and then a couple of days later, he bought another, and he bought 375 rounds of ammunition, all in the period of a few days. He can't, dr- he couldn't drink on his 18th birthday because you had to be 21 to drink in on his 18th birthday. That seems off to me, and it also seems like, wow, this is a red flag. This kid buying all of this weaponry in a short period of time. Shouldn't we as a country be able to do something about these things? Well, I think that, I mean, first of all, you know, this is obviously a a heartbreaking tragedy. I mean, as a father of, you know, three kids as well, it is, you just look at those stories and you you just, you know, your heart just breaks and our prayers go out to those families. And we do have to do, you know, an investigation of both this and what happened in Buffalo as well. I think generally speaking, we need to go to the root cause of this. And even though we don't know in this particular case, because we have to do the investigation, Stanford University has done studies on this that show that these shooters have mental health issues. These mass yeah. shooters. Yeah. And right. We're not talking about just the domestic dispute no, where somebody's used a gun. Or, or yeah. homicides, which yeah. are gun homicides, which yeah. are much more prevalent here than yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. But I think we got to get to the root cause, which is if we're talking about mental health care, we need to do more with regard to that. And that's one of the things we've been doing in Nebraska, uh, trying to open up lines of communication between educators, mental health professionals, and law enforcement. Uh, we need to be more preventative. Uh, one of the things we've done in Nebraska is establish our system of care, which is a, uh, again, we're trying to be more preventative with mental health care, especially targeting children, like trying to get to children so that we can keep them in school, not take them in our homes, not do really invasive inpatient type treatment, but get it early on so that they don't have to you know, be pulled out of school and provide, for example, a triage line so that if you can't get to a clinic, we can uh, be able to you know, get some help uh, on a home, you know, on a phone line or a Zoom call with a mental health professional. Uh, we're investing, you know, in just this last legislative session, we had another $5 million to try and encourage people to go into behavioral health and nursing because we've got a huge shortage across the country. Of course, country. there's no, there's no yeah. guarantee uh, that this, I mean, this kid had no record. This kid had, you know, this, there, there are a lot of, there's in these particular cases. But, but let me just expand the discussion because, and I understand, I mean, look, uh, I, I'm, I, I talk about mental health a lot on this podcast. It's an important issue to me. But we have 11 times higher the homicide rate in our country than in other developed countries. We have 5% of the population, and we have 42% of the privately owned handguns. You're a data guy. 
these things mean something, don't they? Because we don't have 11 times the mental health problems in this country that but they have in also, other countries. Doesn't Cook County have one of the most restrictive gun laws in the country? And, and also 60, one of the highest 60, murder rates, And too? 60% of the yeah. guns come yeah. in from out of state, uh, mm-hmm. many of them from Indiana, which has some of the least restrictive gun laws. So 60% of the guns that are recovered in crimes here come from out of state, Mississippi and Indiana being the leading uh, examples of that. So that if if we could if we could have comparable gun laws in those states, our our homicide rate would be significantly lower here. I mean, I get the I, I do get the mental health aspect, particularly of these mass shootings. We just saw one in Buffalo that w- with another eighteen year old uh, kid who clearly has uh, significant uh, issues that are that that morphed into hate, and that's a whole other issue, you right. know. What we're what what radicalization online and so on, but can we really say that guns are not part of the equation here? Well, the gun, guns are a tool, just like anything else. They can be used well or poorly, and that's where I get back to. Let's get at the root cause. And I, I think there's an analogy here with sex trafficking. Sex trafficking is something that happens all over this country, and we need to do more from a law enforcement standpoint. But we also need to be doing more from a participation of the public to be involved, looking for the signs of it. It's one of the things we do in Nebraska is teach, for example, emergency room docs to look for the types of tattoos or teach the general public that, you know, be looking out, especially at rest stops and and gas stations for someone who doesn't have control of their phone or their ID. Those are signs. And then there's 800 numbers we post on all these places as well. Call in and and notify the authorities about this. So to combat sex trafficking, we do need the involvement of the public to be educated. And I think it's the same thing with regard to how do we be more preventative with regard to finding people who are going to be at risk for doing these kinds of things. Uh, Again, we have to do the investigation in these, but you look at the parkland, for example, that person had been, the cops have been called 45 times and the FBI twice on that person. So there are, I think there are signs out there when somebody's going to do this, we need to educate the public. Uh, and again, about, that, those yeah. are the mass killings, yeah. and and that's it, it's extraordinarily important. They still have access to guns. You know, you say guns are tools, and it's a curious choice of words because you know uh, semi-automatic weapons are basically tools of war. Um, so uh, the the question is, why should an eighteen-year-old kid be able to buy two of them on his eighteenth birthday? Well, I think that, and of course, we do have uh, laws that restrict you know, how you can purchase guns, but it's also our second amendment, right? Right. It's in the constitution. And while we have laws protecting our speech rights, you know, the first amendment, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Exactly. Uh, We certainly have, we, we, I think when you have a constitutional right, that the, the bar is higher to put those restrictions in place. doesn't mean there's not more things we can do to take a look at. You know, we have laws, for example, that if you have mental health problems, you're not supposed to be allowed to buy a gun. Uh, that's and when you buy guns, you're supposed to go through a background check, right? You go to a sporting goods store and you buy a gun, you're supposed to go through, you know, they're, they're required to do a, a background check on you. So, I mean, that's where, again, I think we need to look at some of the root causes because if you do have somebody that is going to be at risk for this, that's where we need the public and law enforcement and educators and everybody to, to step in and try to be able to be more preventive so that we can stop the people who are going to be at risk for this without taking away the rights from people who are law-abiding citizens who are going to do the right thing. You're right that you, there is a constitutionally protected right. And you're also right that you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, even though we have a First Amendment. So there are limitations to it. I mean, you can't buy a bazooka. You can't buy a cannon. Why, why should you be able to buy? Well, I mean, what do people need 
semi-automatic weapons for? Well, uh, you know, first of all, uh, if you're going to be a recreational shooter, that's one of the things that you use it for. Um, if you're going to be going hunting hogs, for example, in Texas, you use a semi-automatic rifle there as well. So, I mean, there are uses that people have for it. And again, this is where I think we need to be focused on what is the root cause and not trying to take away rights from people who are law-abiding citizens, who the vast majority of gun owners do the right thing. Now, does it mean we can't do more around educating gun owners about securing, you know, your uh, firearms, make sure they're locked up in a safe and all the good, you know, best practices that go along with that? We should do that. What about expanding the the thing that 90% of Americans, including 70 Three percent of Republicans support, which is just expanding background checks. Would you object to that? I mean, there were three hundred thousand gun sales in two thousand and twenty that were uh, disallowed because of background checks that because the people were not eligible to buy guns. Why wouldn't we expand that? I mean that. That well, doesn't infringe on so anybody's rights. If you go to a rights. store to buy a gun, you have to go through that. So what you're right. talking about is expanding it to now. You're my dad. You're going to sell me a gun. How are we going to? How are we going to? How is the government going to interfere with that? Because that's what you're talking about now. It's private sales between individuals. What or, you're talking about, or gun shows. But those are. But again, if you are a federally licensed firearm dealer at a gun show, you do a background check at that gun show. So again, what you're talking about is private sales between individuals. What you're talking about because it's not between. Like again, if I'm a company at a gun show and I'm selling a gun, I still got to do a background check. We're also talking about. Uh, the length of time that is allowed for these background checks. So part of the reforms that have been discussed is expanding the time for the background check because sometimes there isn't enough time to perform the background check. The, the time expires, the sale goes goes through. Mm, I haven't heard of that one, but maybe I need to do a little bit more research on that. In, in any case, I mean, I wonder how much latitude you or anybody in 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 your party right now in your region and so on, how much latitude you have on this issue? But I know you're you're a super smart guy and you are a data guy. And what the question I would ask as a data person is, why are we so different than every other developed country? I mean, if you know El Salvador has a very big gun problem and there are some other countries, but among our peer countries. We're, we stand alone. It, it just, it's striking. Well, I also think that it gets back to why did our founders put the Second Amendment into our Constitution? They did it because the radical idea at the time, right, that our rights come to us from God, not the government. There are rights and there are rights to defend. And that's why they put the Second Amendment in there, that we would be able to defend our rights. It's part of who we are as a nation to be able to say, hey, these rights are ours individually, not the government. They also put them in because we were expanding, because there wasn't necessarily a means of protecting people in the areas in which we were expanding. I mean, there there was a different time and 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 a uh, uh, you know a different set of circumstances. Anyway. We could. I we think could. you go read Thomas Jefferson, though. He was pretty clear. He thought the government's tending toward tyranny, and that's why. Well, do he you wanted- think that that's? Do you think people should be armed against potential tyranny of the government? I mean, is that what you're? Well, I think that's part of the founding and philosophy of our country, and I think that is what sets us apart from other countries. And I think that's why we hold our rights more dear. And it is it was radical at the time, and it's still not universally accepted around the world. So I do think it's an important part of who we are as Americans to remember that our rights came to us from God and that our, our, our Second Amendment right is there but to protect I, that. But, but it is kind of a scary thought, though, that uh, we should – that 
we should be out there selling AR-15s as a hedge against a tyrannical government. Doesn't that invite? Well, again, I think it gets back to if you're selling to a responsible 18-year-old, it's not a problem. It's the people who are going to abuse it, which is where it gets back to the mental health, which is why we need to go back to the root cause. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I was just looking at a poll where a, a, a shocking number of, of, of people said who were gun owners said it wasn't a majority. It was more like a third to 40% said uh, that we may have to take up arms against the government. And um, that that's worrisome to me. In this environment, we've seen now how things can can veer out of hand. I'm just going to ask you about I mean, one go other. Back, go back to Tom. Read Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I, you know what? What do you say? The, the, I wish Thomas the Jefferson were here right now. I'd be eager to hear what he had to say about what, what, too. What, what we're going on right now. Because actually, this, this, this is a different time. We were a, a brand time. new country. We had just, you know. Uh, but it's kind of shocking how often Thomas Jefferson thought there'd have to be revolutions. Right, and he, I mean, the, the tree of liberty needed to be uh, watered with the blood of. I'm going to uh, paraphrasing. The blood of tyrants and patriots, right, yeah. is what he said. So, well, it's not a prospect that I, you know, I have great faith in the institutions of our democracy. So, uh, I guess I'm not looking forward to the watering. No, no, no. I, I, but I was just commenting on how often Thomas Jefferson thought we might do it. Yes, I, well, I, I have this. I share the same faith in the institutions you do, David. And but I do think it's also part of our culture and our philosophy of hey, we defend our rights. I mean, even if it's a philosophical defending of it. Uh, we do defend our rights individually. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's an important part of uh, our country and, and why we defend our rights, yeah. how we think about it. I, I agree. But we have to be thoughtful because those poor kids in uh, Uvalde had rights too. They had a right to live their lives fully. And when I see their innocent, beautiful faces holding up their honors certificates and knowing that two hours later that life would be snuffed out, that's hard, man. Yeah. That's a hard no, thing to absorb. It's a tragedy. So let me just ask you one other thing. And then I just want to talk generally about the nature of our politics right now, because I, I appreciate sitting here with you and having this discussion. And I think it's important for us to have these these discussions, you know, uh, without uh, banging the table and shaking <laughs> fists and all of that right. stuff. But we, the other issue that's obviously percolating right now, and I, I've seen you talk about it, is the uh, issue of Roe versus Wade and the likelihood that that's going to come to an end. And I know you've made a state's right. Uh, you, you believe this should be a decision for states. And you said in your state, your position is you would move quickly to act and you would not have any exceptions at all. Well, I think that's an unfair characterization. No, I'm just yeah. asking. Yeah. I don't mean to so, mischaracterize in any yeah. way. So I do believe that life begins at conception and that, you know, these are preborn babies and that we should do all we can to protect those preborn babies. Uh, I also know that there's things like ectopic pregnancies that are never going to be viable, right? Or that, say, for example, a pregnant mom has cancer and she needs chemotherapy. Well, you should still treat the mom. And if the baby dies, that's a tragedy. But you're not trying to kill the baby. You're trying to save the mom. And that's how I want to let, you know, approach this and let doctors and moms take that step to figure out what's the best for the mom and 
you know, manage it that way. But I want to protect those those preborn babies. And if Roe versus Wade is overturned, you know, I have said that I'll work with my speaker of the legislature to see what we can do to do more to protect those preborn babies. I find this a very difficult issue because oh, it's big and complicated, because yeah. there are, because there there's so much certainty on both sides. Everybody's sort of absolutist about their positions, and I think most Americans sort of live in the middle of this uh, of this discussion, but feel uncomfortable saying to a woman you don't have the right to make this decision about about what's going to happen with your own body. But I want to ask a specific question, and, and it's, a, it's a hard question to ask, but you've got, like, you've got two wonderful daughters, uh, college-age daughters. Uh, if one of them came to you and said, I've been raped, you would say to them, we're going to support you. We love you. Um, it's a baby. And you know, we don't punish people for other people's crimes. Right, we, we that's not how our system of justice works, and that's still a child, and that child is, you know, God doesn't make mistakes, so that's a beautiful child, and we'll support you through this, and we'll help bring that child along. Yeah, and I know you're 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 uh, you're devout Catholic. You've raised in that tradition, still very active. I'm sure that informs your thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I believe life begins at conception. Because I want to ask you about one last uh, thing here: the death penalty, which is something that you uh, you 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 tangle with your legislature. You have an interesting legislature, <laughs> by the we way. We do unicameral, unicameral, and it's not really they're not elected by party, right? Yeah, we're nonpartisan, right? Yeah. So uh, it's a one-house legislature, forty-nine. We call them state senators, and uh, we are the only one of the states. But the island of Guam, I understand, has a unicameral too. Would you recommend it? Like any system, it's got pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am told, and I have not worked with other legislatures, I am told we're less partisan than other state houses. Uh, I was asked in our, our uh, little roundtable earlier uh, whether it was more efficient. It's not. <laughs> it's actually less efficient. It takes longer to pass bills. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing when it's my good bill that's getting delayed, but mm-hmm. it's a good thing when it's somebody else's bad bill that's <laughs> yes, getting delayed. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I know how that works. Yeah, you said you have but, uh So, I mean, it's just like it's got pros and cons like anything else. It only takes 17 votes out of our 49 state senators to block any legislation. So it does take longer to develop that consensus to get to the point where you can get a filibuster-proof majority. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will say we don't have a unicameral system, and we've got some pros and cons in our legislature too. So. <laughs> but let me ask you about let me let me just ask you about uh, about the death penalty issue because you know the Pope has spoken on this and has made clear that he thinks that the death penalty is not in keeping with the teachings of the the Church. So how do you choose which? you're going to be guided by and, and which you're not. And why do you feel so strongly about this? Yeah, so if you look at the Catholic Church, right, you can go back and look almost universally, the Church Fathers and Church Doctors, St. Augustine to Robert Bellarmine, <sighs> Bellarmine, all believe the state should have the authority to have the death penalty to protect the public safety. And so the recent changes in the Catholic Church's philosophy are very recent out of a you know, nearly 2,000-year history. 2018, I believe, yeah. is when Pope Francis... Yeah. So, but yeah, two thousand year history of the church, and so relatively recent, right? So, um, I think there's plenty of people with Catholic, you know, theologians who have supported this. So, from a Catholic standpoint, one of the things we also believe is you need to, you know, follow what your conscience says. And for me, you ask me why do I believe so strongly in this? I believe that this is part of defending public safety, and specifically our law enforcement officers who risk their lives to go out there to protect us, and 
This is one of the ways that we help support them and back them by saying, hey, if you kill a police officer, that one of the things that you're going to be facing is a death penalty. And um, you know, certainly we want to make sure it's something that is implemented only in the rarest of circumstances, and in Nebraska it is. Uh, and it's up to, you know, you've got, there's a huge amount of process that goes behind actually carrying out a penalty, uh, carrying out the sentence for a death penalty uh, that involves years and years and years and multiple appeals processes and so forth and multiple judges and so forth. So it's a very extensive process to actually get to the point where you're actually carrying it out. So I do believe that in Nebraska, we're doing it the right way. And, and again, it's up to the judge and jury to make that decision. And so it's a, it is something that I think is appropriate for the state to have that authority. And 68% of Nebraskans agree with me. Yeah. You put it on the ballot. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that concerns me and We've had terribly large number of cases. I mean, 13 in one swoop, but more since then of people on death row in this state who, through DNA evidence, turned out not to be guilty of the crime for which they were convicted. And um, that, to me, you know, the, the the irrevocability of the death sentence of a death sentence seems daunting and concerning uh, because we are human and we are fallible. Yeah, and that's where it gets back to, I'm a Federalist, right? I believe the states ought to, again, 10th Amendment, if it wasn't spelled out for the federal government, should go to the states. That means when states manage things, sometimes they'll be managed well and sometimes they'll be managed poorly. And the voters of those states are there to hold officials accountable for how they're running the government. So, you know, in Illinois' case with what you were describing, that's up to the voters to say then, hey, we're going to demand accountability and put their own solutions in place to address those sort of issues. So yeah. I'm, I'm, that's where I think the states need to manage it. If they need to manage it better, they should manage it better. I'm not going to ask you about Trump. You just, you just, you, your candidate for governor just beat his candidate for governor in Nebraska. You urged him not to. You, you probably should have taken Involved. your advice. Should have taken your advice. But I do want to ask you about the tenor of our politics because, you know, we're having a good discussion here. Um, but, you know, it's so hard to get, you know, there's so much anger and so much outrage. And in our politics, Anger and outrage sells in bases of both parties, but uh, you know, I think the president was very good at at at, at uh, exploiting that. In our social media, anger and outrage is what keeps people online. It feels like the incentives for cooperation, the incentives for civil discourse, have been eroded uh, by uh, you know a whole range of things. And it worries me in a, you know, as a democracy uh, about how we move forward. If I can, I think you are a committed American who cares about this country, cares about his state, even though I disagree with you on some stuff. I hope you think the same of me. But that that increasingly is not the norm. We don't have opponents. We have enemies. We have adversaries. How do we diffuse that? Well, I think one of the things we got to remember is put in perspective. Politics in this country have always been messy, right? Winston Churchill. We did have a civil war. Yeah, we had a civil war. Um, Let's go back to our founders again. There's a great book, Founding Brothers, that talked about how Thomas Jefferson started a whisper campaign against George Washington. George Washington found out, called him out to his face. uh, Jefferson lied to him, said, no, that wasn't me. (laughs) I'm like, look, politics, they used to publish under pen names to personally attack each other. You know, Alexander Hamilton, Raymond Burr shot, you know, had a duel. Hamilton dies because of it. Like, at least nobody's dying right now, right? And, you know, we had- Well, we, we're lucky, well, though. Well, we're lucky. Uh, or, I mean, you know, well, we, we, we had, had, we had we, some people died at the Capitol. 
Well, okay, David, the people who die at the Capitol, let's, you need to dig into that, right? Because a lot of them had heart attacks on site, right? I, I mean, I, I went through the five people went died. Some of these were all health, some of these, I think they were all health related issues. Uh, the one officer who died, I'm trying to think of what the circumstances around that was. I think In any case, yeah, I get your point, yeah. but, but, but but the point is, we, but here, like, look, prior to the Civil War, we had a senator from South Carolina nearly beat to death on the floor of the U.S. Senate, a senator from New Hampshire, right? That doesn't happen today. We had the 60s, a very divisive time. Yeah. I feel like we're in the 60s again. We'll get through it. We just got to get to the 80s. You know, 80s were the best music decade ever. We'll get there. And it'll get better. I mean, politics has always been messy. It's oftentimes been divisive. And, you know, there are things maybe contributing to it, like social media. It's a new tool. We got to learn how to use it better. We yeah, will. The problem we is, will over you know, time. Yeah, the, the difference, I, I agree with you about history, and I can chapter and verse cite some of the things that happened in our history that were really contentious. But these, you talk about new tools. Technology is churning at such a fast rate that we almost can't get our arms around the impacts of all of it and how they can be abused and 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 and, and uh, used as uh, tools to provoke. So, uh, listen. I want to leave on a positive note. I, I, I'm rooting for your interpretation of history, uh, but I would urge you to, you know, use your formidable voice uh, to try and encourage, uh, you know, more dialogue and less diatribe, uh, because I think it's important. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And you know, uh, getting back to uh, the Nebraska unicameral, one of the things I mentioned is you've got a filibuster rule. That requires 17, you know, you can only take 17 votes to block things. There's 17 Democrats in my legislature. So really to get anything passed, we have to work with the other side to be able to get that passed. When we passed tax relief, we had 41 votes. A lot of Democrats voted for that. Now, I would have loved to pass that bill years ago. <laughs> Getting back to it takes time. But that's the process, too, when you're going to work through things. It's going to take time. It's not going to move as fast as maybe people want to do it. But I, I got to tell you, I, uh, I, I tell young people all the time, if somebody old like me tries to tell you about the good old days, they're full of it. These are the good old days. Mm -hmm. uh, this country has got so much potential in front, in front of us. So many good things are going on right now. Well, if you work with young people yeah. as I do here, that's what gives me hope. That's what makes, makes me uh, feel like the future can be better because these young people aren't daunted by the pace of change. They're committed to making the world a better place. And they're, they're willing to think differently. And uh, I think it's really, really important. And I appreciate you coming and spending some time, time with them today and spending time with me. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. And go Cubs. Go Cubs. All right. Thanks, Governor. Great. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.